Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. I've had a case every day this week. A low osmolar gap does not rule out a toxic alcohol exposure. The evidence for giving bicarb isn't based on huge randomized control trials. Really? I would stand at the foot of the bed and calculate the patient's respirate myself. And they would prefer to just go steal our hand sanitizer than they would to go and use methanol. Incredibly well explained. For the most part, these patients come in as an enigma. And it's a couple of hours before we are sure that this was a toxic alcohol exposure. Tough topic to tackle. It's going to be your great case of your career when you have that patient come in. We can take this higher, higher. We see patients with toxic alcohol poisoning most commonly in three clinical scenarios. One which is usually relatively straightforward after an intentional suicide attempt where they tell you exactly what they took. The next scenario is a lot more challenging when they come in just agitated and they won't give you a history. And then the third, even more challenging, is the inebriated patient found down. Now, alcohol is everywhere, and inevitably inebriated people show up in your ED with a myriad of medical and psychiatric problems. We're all familiar with these patients, or they're simply very drunk. And most of them just need to sober up and then can eventually be sent home. But our job as ED professionals is not only to identify traumatic medical and psychiatric catastrophes in these patients, but also to identify and manage the relatively rare but potentially life-threatening and site-threatening toxicologic diagnoses in the inebriated or agitated patient. And that isn't so easy, especially when it comes to the toxic alcohols. So in this episode, number 106, Toxic Alcohols, Minding the Gaps, Recognition and Emergency Management, We've got the mighty return of two of my favorite, brilliant toxicologists, Margaret Thompson, the medical director of the Ontario Poison Control Center, and the blossoming toxicology educator extraordinaire, Dr. Emily Austin, also from St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Now, when I say alcohol is everywhere, it's especially concentrated in patients you see at St. Mike's, right? So let's start off with just, can you give us a little sense of what it's like to do an overnight shift at St. Mike's, just to give our listeners a sense of the environment you work in before we kick into the first case. We certainly see our share of alcohol intoxication, I'd I say. think probably 50% of the patients that we see in our emergency department, part of the reason they're there is because of alcohol. 50%? 50%. Wow. It's, yeah, yeah, it's not too um, And it may not be frank, found down, um, inebriated, it may be that they were trauma patients and the reason that they got involved in their trauma was because, you know, decreased inhibitions. You know, often the fights in the bars on a Saturday night are secondary to, you know, it doesn't really matter and I'm going to stab you with this broken beer bottle. <laughs> wow. So not only are you two academic experts on this topic, but <laughs> you're true clinical experts. <laughs> I think we, we see won't a lot say of it. personal experts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, personal exactly. experts. All right. So with that context, let's jump into the first case. A 30-year-old woman presents to your ED with police after a bystander called because he was stumbling into a busy downtown street and came very close to being hit by a car. 
He's acting somewhat belligerent, yelling all kinds of profanities, and is clearly agitated, trying to tear his arms free from the four-point restraints. You ask him what he's ingested recently, and he refuses to answer. He won't give you any history, and you have difficulty examining him. The cap glucose is normal, and you're able to get some vital signs. He's a little bit tachypneic at 24 breaths a minute. He's a bit tachycardic at 115 beats per minute, and he's a bit hypotensive despite being agitated at 100 over 50. He appears disheveled, pupils are dilated, skin is normal in color with no visible track marks. He has no obvious signs of head injury. You look up his previous visits to your ED and note that he has a history of bipolar disorder and alcohol misuse. He's been seen several times in your ED for alcohol intoxication and sent home, but was admitted to the ICU with a lithium overdose about a year ago. When a patient like this one comes in seemingly just inebriated or drunk, generally speaking, Dr. Austin, how do you go about recognizing other associated life-threatening issues? What's going through your head? So, you know, Anton, if I'm picturing this patient right now, I think that my first priority is going to be to sort of contain the patient. It seems like he's quite agitated and we need to make sure that we can properly assess him and complete our set of vital signs. So at this point, I'm probably thinking that we need to give this guy some type of benzo to sedate him a little bit so we can complete our assessment fully. And probably I'd use something like I am out of van or something like that for that. What I think is most important is with our set of vital signs, I'd like to get a temperature because you're describing lots of different features here. And I'm, one of the things that's on the top of my mind is, is this patient presenting with a sympathomimetic toxidrome? He's tachycardic. His pupils are dilated. He's really, really agitated. He's a bit diaphoretic. I got to know what his temp is, so I'm not going to miss a hyperthermia. But then the truth is that we really, what we have on our hands is an altered patient. And our differential diagnosis for that is huge. So once we can contain our patient a little bit more, hopefully with some IM Ativan, I'd see if I can get any type of additional history from him. I'd see if I, I'm concerned about a type of head injury or um, a neurologic phenomenon. Is he moving all his extremities? Any evidence of weakness? I think that the one vital sign that you've mentioned that we also need to pay attention to is that he's got a rest rate of 24. That can be pretty nonspecific, but it's something that I always am drawn to a little bit because the other what I, what I think of when I think of a tachypnea is does this patient have a metabolic acidosis? Now, this is sort of setting us up to talk about toxic alcohols, but this would be the one clue maybe in this presentation that this would go beyond general inebriation. And I think in somebody who's this altered and is requiring this much containment, the truth is that I can't just say to myself, this is alcohol intoxication. I need to work it up a little bit more and have a broader differential. As Emily says, there's you know potential that this is something worse. Things are missed in these chronic alcoholics all the time. The alcohol makes your platelets not work so effectively. They're prone to falling. And so the differential has to include that there's something happening in their CNS and probably gets scanned multiple times. But in the state that he's in, this guy can't even go for a CT scan to be sure that there's nothing happening intracerebrally. It's tricky because I, I don't think that either of us want to advocate for doing blood work on all of the alcohol-intoxicated right. patients yeah. that we see. Like, there's just no utility for that, and it doesn't benefit anybody. But it, it's important that when we see these patients that we remain vigilant to not be missing all the other things that are out there. And I think, for me, it was something that you develop it a little bit as a clinical, as part of your clinical skills, I think, in your training and as you start practicing a little bit and start to get a feel for 
this patient I can redirect and I can be reassured that by a clinical exam and my, by my set of vital signs and probably always a cap glucose that I am can continue to monitor in a stable environment for the next hour or two versus I'm going to actually work this up a little bit now. And sometimes you're going to work up alcohol inebriation for sure. I find it really difficult, especially in the setting where we work. These patients are brought in by EMS usually. They're put on an EMS stretcher. They're then transferred to, in our setting, a hall stretcher. And so they're placed and evaluated in the hall. So at no time do they ever get completely undressed. And it behooves the emergency physician to say, I can't accept that this is not like any other patient and that you shouldn't benefit from a full history physical attempt. And so it's always a fight with the emergency physician and the other emergency staff to assure that that patient is taken into a private room, is completely undressed, gets that full set of vital signs, and that the eMERGE physician doesn't do just a cursory, can you move all of your limbs sort of assessment. You know, I have missed, or I haven't missed, but I would have missed had I not got undressed, you know, livers that go down to your umbilicus and spleens that go down to your umbilicus or scrotal bruising that was significant, um, all sorts of other pathology on these chronic alcoholics. And you have to advocate for them. You have to do that full physical exam, turn them over once. One of the nurses yesterday was just describing a patient who had Fournier's gangrene, um, came in with a little bit of a temperature, tachycardia, tachypnea. Um, had that patient not been completely undressed, we would have missed a life-threatening thing that could have killed him in a couple of hours. That all being said, this podcast is about toxic alcohols. So let's say this patient told you he ingested some antifreeze along with some vodka. So often with overdose patients, they ingest some sort of household product or herbal medicine or some other concoction that I have no idea what specific toxins are in it. First, from a practical perspective, logistics here, Dr. Thompson, how do you figure out what the exact contents of an unfamiliar product that a patient has ingested? To me, antifreeze usually means um, radiator antifreeze, which is ethylene glycol. And that's almost the only product that you would find it in. There are some other car automotive products that you would find ethylene glycol in. There um, is diethylene glycol as well, which is in other automotive products that you they might have access to in a garage. Or So asking them where they got the product is sometimes helpful. And if I'm talking about... Um, methanol, then you're usually finding methanol in products like windshield wiper fluid, sterno, a number of cleaning products, a number of degreasing products, a number of solvents, even some Windex products um, have up to 15% methanol in them. So if I have the container um, you can call the uh, the poison center in your jurisdiction and you can get them to use their product identifier to tell you what it is that could be in that product and if there's anything there that you might be worries, uh, worried about and therefore have to pursue the, the issue further. All right. That'll be a recurring theme. Call your poison control center early. All right. So just to review with the alcohols, um, I think it's helpful to remember in general, the kinds of products that these different toxic alcohols are found in. 
for methanol, you had mentioned windshield wiper fluid, uh, de-icing products, uh, paint removers, shoe dyes, embalming fluid. And uh, that's surprising that a lot of Windex products have have methanol in them as well. For ethylene glycol, that's typically found in radiator antifreeze, degreasing agents, foam stabilizers, metal cleaners. And although it perhaps isn't categorized as a toxic alcohol, isopropanol uh, is found in things like rubbing alcohol, hand sanitizer gels, and other antiseptic preparations. And we'll, we'll have all these listed in the show notes and on the EM Cases app for quick access when you're on shift. When we're talking about alcohols in general, we're talking about a group of products that just have, back to our organic chemistry, an OH group on it. So that actual population of chemicals can be really, really high. Ethanol, or alcohol that we all drink when we go out, is one of these chemicals. But then we deal with stuff like methanol and ethylene glycol. Margaret mentioned diethylene glycol, and we talked about some of the sources for those. And then the last one's isopropyl alcohol. Those are really the ones that the eMERGE docs need to know. Right. So, yeah, I like to think of it in sort of two broad groups. There's the truly toxic alcohols, methanol and ethylene glycol, and then the alcohols that can make you inebriated and might require some supportive care. That's ethanol and isopropyl alcohol. Yeah. Okay. And just for the keeners out there, diethylene glycol is found in what? There are some radiator anti um, radiator antifreeze that will have diethylene glycol in them, being the the most common source of it. But it's actually in history one of the epidemic poisonings. It's a really interesting toxin in a number of pro- of products that have you know medicinal products. Often, diethylene glycol has been inadvertently substituted for sucrose because it's very sweet and. There have been outbreaks of renal failure because diethylene glycol also causes renal failure and metabolic acidosis in large populations in the world. There's been a recent outbreak in Peru. There's been a recent outbreak in Panama. And it's not measured as ethylene glycol. So if you ask your lab to give you toxic alcohols, you're not going to get a diethylene glycol level. Um, So it's really a high index of suspicion and usually an epidemic before somebody clues in that this is what's going on. Wow. Okay. So if you speak to your toxicologist about a patient with a metabolic acidosis who you think might have a toxic alcohol ingestion and they, uh, they mentioned diethylene glycol, at least now you have some clue of what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Call the poison center. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, so those are the two broad groups of, of alcohols we talked about, the truly toxic ones, methanol, ethylene glycol, and diethylene glycol, if you want to throw that in. And then the not-so-toxic ones that have a totally different metabolism, the ethanol that we sometimes drink, and isopropyl alcohol. So, Dr. Thompson, what makes isopropyl alcohol less toxic than methanol and ethylene glycol and more like the ethanol that we drink on a on a Saturday night? So, although isopropyl alcohol is more inebriating for each mouthful as compared to a mouthful of ethanol, it's not metabolized to an acid. So what defines a toxic alcohol is one that is metabolized to an acid. Absolutely. I think it's actually worth just reviewing very quickly the metabolic pathway 
we're providing now with the podcast uh, chapter markings where we can add images to them. So even if you're just listening to the podcast um, on your phone, if you have access to the chapter markings, you, you might be able to see an image that we'll put on there and we'll also have it on the app on the show and the show notes. So Dr. Austin, could you just run through for us quickly the methanol and ethylene glycol, uh, the basic pathway, just because I think it is helpful to understand these pathways because then clinically we we can understand better what's going on. For sure. So let's start, let's throw alcohol in there. So let's talk about ethanol or eth- like alcohol that we all drink. Alcohol, methanol, and ethylene glycol. We're going to talk about two enzymes that metabolize essentially all of these compounds. And the first enzyme is called alcohol dehydrogenase. And then the second enzyme is called aldehyde dehydrogenase. And these are going to come up later when we're talking about treatment. But basically... In a sort of fundamental way, both of these enzymes end up metabolizing all three of our parent compounds, ethanol, methanol, and ethylene glycol, down to their final metabolites. So if we're talking about ethanol, ethanol, what we drink every day, is eventually going to get metabolized to acetic acid, which gets thrown into our Krebs cycle that we all had to learn, probably in high school, but again in university, and we haven't thought of since. So you get, into, you get into the Krebs cycle and you start to make your ATP and do some other stuff. So that's ethanol. That's what we do. When we're talking about methanol, methanol, the same two enzymes, gets metabolized through, but our end product with methanol is formic acid. Formic acid can get us into trouble. That's, and we'll talk maybe a bit more about that in a minute. The third one is going to be ethylene glycol. Slightly more complicated, but the gist with ethylene glycol is that it's going to get metabolized to one, glycolic acid, which can create the significant metabolic acidosis. And then glycolic acid is going to get further metabolized into oxalic acid. And so that oxalic acid is going to, both the glycolic acid and the oxalic acid are going to go on to cause toxicity. The, the oxalic acid is the one that combines with calcium. You got gives it. You the calcium oxalate exactly. crystals. That- What's interesting in that in ethylene glycol, the oxalic acid tends to cause a lot of end organ effects, okay? Because it can deposit in places like the renal tubules, potentially the brain. But it's actually the glycolic acid that's most responsible for the acidosis that you get. And absolutely, when we're talking about toxic alcohols, these acido- the acidosis can get people super sick too. All right. So really the bottom line there is for methanol and ethylene glycol, you end up with acids, with methanol, it's pretty straightforward. It's formic acid. With ethylene glycol, it's a bit more complicated. There's there's the oxalate, which deposits in the kidneys to give you the renal failure, uh, and then the glycolic acid, which gives you that horrible metabolic anion gap acidosis. Just to complete the picture, maybe we should talk about isopropyl alcohol. So isopropyl alcohol goes through the same metabolic pathway, but it's going to end in acetone. And you can't acetone, when you look at the structure of this, if you care to, acetone cannot get further metabolized into an acid. So it's just a ketone. But this always confused me because I think to myself, what about ketoacidosis? That causes an acid. It's not actually the acetone ketone that causes the acidosis in diabetic ketoacidosis or alcohol ketoacidosis. It's some of the other ketones or keto acids. Okay. So the bottom practical line there is that that methanol and ethylene glycol will cause an anion gap metabolic acidosis. So that's on your gold mark mnemonic. While ethanol and isopropyl alcohol 
they don't get metabolized to acids. And even though you can get ketones with isopropyl alcohol, it doesn't cause a ketoacidosis per se. Right. So we've got our agitated patient here. Let's talk about how to recognize the methanol and ethylene glycol toxicity. Dr. Thompson, what are the practical clues to recognizing the toxic alcohols in a patient who either just comes in agitated, altered, inebriated? What are those key clinical clues we need to know? So as you said, Anton, um, this inebriated or intoxicated or altered patient um, has drank an an alcohol. That just means, as Emily's been speaking about, that it's got the substance had an OH group on it. And all of those are inebriating and they all cause those same changes in the brain that leads to disinhibition and, you know, agitation, etc., and eventually somnolence and depressed level of consciousness, etc. So that's not a clue that this is a toxic alcohol versus a um, non-toxic alcohol that is not just regular ethanol. So if you give it time, methanol, when it's metabolized to formic acid, the formic acid causes damage to your retina and therefore leads to um, visual disturbances. And a patient who's awake enough might complain to you, they feel like they're looking through a snowstorm and or they can't visualize at all and they complain of decreased visual acuity. Um, that's usually later though. We're not going to see that after, you know, an hour after they drank the methanol. That takes time for the metabolism to the formic acid and the damage to the retina. Okay. So one of the clinical clues then, if the timing is right, you know, that they ingested it more than a couple of hours ago. Sometimes 24 hours ago. Okay. It takes a long time time for that metabolism to occur. Is that classic snowstorm visual feel that they they complain of that you see in textbooks. So that's one clinical clue, if you're lucky. And so to the emergency physician at that stage, you might see fixed dilated pupils. I've been involved with a case at the bedside where a code stroke was called on a patient who eventually seized. And all I can tell you is that part of the reason that the code stroke was called is because in the chief complaint, there was a complaint about some visual change. And we had no exact information about what that visual change was, and either did the triage note. But it wasn't as textbook classic as snowstorm. So I think that it's really important for us. I would love it if a patient could tell me that, but I don't know that they'll be able to tell us that. I think that the patient may If you can elicit a history of some type of change in the vision or visual abnormality, that's going to be helpful. Sometimes it's described in the literature as a central scotoma, so sort of like this central, maybe a floater or central vision loss. But the other one, of course, is a textbook snowstorm. As your patient is becoming more toxic and more of the parent is being metabolized to the acid, you might start to see tachypnea. So one of the really important things about these inebriated patients is you have to keep them and you have to keep um, evaluating them like every hour, go back and recheck the vitals. And if they're developing a tachypnea or if they come in with tachypnea, that might be a clue of compensation for a metabolic acidosis. And that would be with either of those two toxic alcohols. All right. These are great clinical clues. So the visual changes, 
the tachypnea of uh, metabolic acidosis. And remember that, again, those will take time to develop. Uh, if they just took the toxic alcohol half an hour ago, you're not going to see them yet, which, as you emphasize, brings up the importance uh, of monitoring these patients carefully. Any other clinical clues? I think the other one, Anton, because these patients present sort of inebriated and altered, and we usually suspect that it's just regular old ethanol intoxication, just that point that over time we're expecting an ethanol intoxicated patient to be sobering up. So if you go back and check on your patient and your patient is actually not sobering up, but maybe becoming more obtunded or of course developing the tachypnea like Dr. Thompson mentioned, then that that's a clinical clue to me. This patient, an ethanol intoxicated patient should be sobering up over time. And if you're going the other direction where you're not waking up, I'm going to sort of put my spidey sense up. You know, I know we're going to talk about labs because that's where a lot of the other clues are, but clinically at the bedside, it's a tough diagnosis. Is it really severe intoxication? These patients often seize. And that's, you know, one of the other clues. It's a good point. And then confounds the metabolic acidosis. Well, they've just seized, so maybe it's just lactate. But if it's a late intoxication, the presentation is often seizure. All right. So although none of these things are very specific to toxic alcohols, our spidey sense should go up for the possibility of toxic alcohols. When we see a patient that comes in altered, we should really be thinking about three things. One is if they're tachypneic, we should wonder about a metabolic acidosis. Two is if they have any visual changes. And of course, it's a slam dunk if they describe it as a snowstorm. And then thirdly, if the inebriated patient comes in and they're not sobering up as you would normally expect, that should trigger you to think that there's something else going on and toxic alcohols should be on that list. I guess the bottom line is there isn't a heck of a lot to go on clinically to suspect these toxic alcohols unless the patient's telling you or unless they tell you about the snowstorm vision. Really, a lot of the times these are going to be picked up on the lab results, which we're going to get to next. I think that you make a really great point here because I think that the other place where emergency physicians think about toxic alcohols is when we get a metabolic acidosis. So sometimes your patient can be presenting pretty nonspecifically, maybe a little bit altered, and you get this metabolic acidosis. Or sometimes you're handed over a patient to follow up on the blood work and you get a metabolic acidosis. And that's the place where toxic alcohol should also probably cross your mind. Yeah, so that segues perfectly into talking about the lab results. Let's say you're lucky enough to suspect a toxic alcohol ingestion based on the clinical presentation. First, what lab tests are essential to send off initially um, and then we'll talk about some of the clues in the lab if we don't have a clinical suspicion for toxic alcohols in the, in the first place. We have to be able to calculate an osmolar gap and we have to be able to calculate an anion gap. And so you need to have all the electrolytes. You have to have measured electrolytes, not calculated off of your blood gas. You need to get a venous gas at least. You need a, a BUN. You need a glucose. Often it's difficult in hospitals now because of choosing wisely. We're not allowed to uh, order a BUN or blood urea nitrogen because it doesn't help in the care of the renal failure patient for the most part. 
So there, this is a place where, again, the emergency physician has to advocate and says, I need a BUN to be able to actually calculate an osmolar gap. You want your measured serum osmolality as well, because you have to be able to calculate the gap itself. Measured minus the calculated osmolality will give you the gap that we refer to when we talk about increased anion gap, increased osmolar gap, metabolic acidosis. All right. So just to review there, uh, we're going to be getting a venous gas because of the metabolic acidosis. We're going to be getting an anion gap. We're going to be getting an osmolality. We've got to make sure we get the BUN in there and the electrolytes so that we can calculate the osmolar gap. If the patient is acidotic, we're going to end up getting a lactate, maybe ketones to look at our differential for the Goldmark differential of anion gap acidosis. What about an ethanol level? You had mentioned at the top of the podcast that about half the patients that come into your department have some kind of alcohol on board. Of course, you're not going to do an alcohol level on 40,000 patients a year. (laughs) That wouldn't be choosing wisely. In general, which patients in the emergency department require an ethanol level? What are the indications for an ethanol level? And then in particular, with a patient who you suspect a, um, a toxic alcohol ingestion, what's the value of an ethanol level? It's very difficult for me to say in generically which patients require an ethanol level. Um, For the most part, do I really care if you're drunk? But if you're not improving, like we talked about, if you've got the visual disturbances, um, if the findings seem to be out of keeping with, you know, a single drink, um, then I put it. And to be able to calculate your osmolar gap, you have to get the serum ethanol level as well. Um, Serum ethanol will contribute to your osmolar gap about 1.2 or 1.25 times the alcohol level. And so the gap will diminish with the more alcohol you have there, ethanol that you have there. So that helps you decide that there could be a toxic alcohol as well um, or not, depending on what your calculated minus your measured um, serum osmolality is. So not every patient who comes in inebriated needs an ethanol level. It's really that situation where you're suspecting that there's something else going on besides just ethanol intoxication. Yeah, I think if you're thinking about a toxic alcohol, you need to get an ethanol, a serum ethanol level as well. And like Margaret said, one of the reasons for that is because you need to be able to calculate an osmolar gap. And to calculate your osmolar gap, part of that equation is knowing your serum ethanol because ethanol is going to give you osmoles. So it's an important part of that equation. But the other part is, like we've talked about, this is such a tough diagnosis. And so you're suspecting maybe this is a toxic alcohol, but maybe their ethanol level is like 120, you know? So if you're suspecting a toxic alcohol, I think you need to get a serum ethanol level for sure. Sure. So if their ethanol level comes back at zero and they're inebriated, you really got to worry. If their ethanol level comes back at at 120 really high and you suspect that there might be a toxic alcohol for another reason, then that's good for the patient because they're already treating themselves. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) So it it is actually very helpful. Uh, But again, we want to make clear we're not advocating to do an ethanol level on any patient that comes in inebriated. Yeah, absolutely not. 
So in terms of the initial test in a patient who we suspect might have a toxic alcohol ingestion, uh, we haven't mentioned ECG yet. In particular, ethylene glycol works, as Emily says, as it's metabolized down to an acid. If it gets all the way down to oxalic acid, oxalic acid binds to calcium. And so you can get hypocalcemia. And before your calcium level comes back from the lab, you have a ECG that could show prolonged QTC, for example, as a manifestation of hypocalcemia. So that might be your first clinical clue that there is hypocalcemia. Methanol will not cause that. Ethanol will not cause that. But ethylene glycol with complete um, metabolism to oxalic acid forms calcium oxalate. So I love it. Prolonged QT can be a clue for ethylene glycol toxicity. There are reports for sure of the other symptoms of hypocalcemia presenting from an ethylene glycol intoxication, just as Margaret explained. So the oxalic acid that forms binds up your calcium and people become hypocalcemic. And when you get that hypocalcemic, all of the symptoms that you can present with, it has been reported that people have presented with those. So the tetany, the seizures, and the long QT. Again, this would be a little bit delayed. You have a patient that's come in having just drank sort of within the past two to three, four hours, unless it was a really massive ingestion, you wouldn't expect to be seeing those quite yet. All righty. So let's move on from some of the lab tests and things you'll look out for if you do suspect clinically a toxic alcohol ingestion to what are some of the clues that you'll get from the lab in a patient who just comes in altered. So let's just list them off one by one, and then we'll go back to the case, see what the lab results were there, and get into sort of a deeper discussion on how to interpret these lab results. So Dr. Austin, why don't you start with the lab clues that you're dealing with the toxic alcohol ingestion? So I think that really, for me, from a practical standpoint, I got to be honest with you, Anton, like the point that triggers me to really think of toxic alcohols is going to be an acidosis. That's when I start to think, wait a second, is this a toxic alcohol? So recently I had a patient who came into Kipnik with a pH of 6.9. I'll tell you, it doesn't end up being a toxic alcohol, but this patient required intubation. And before I intubated him, I went in and I asked him, his bicarb was one. I said, have you taken anything that I need to know about? Have you been drinking this? It was a completely unrelated thing. He was really, really, really septic. And I had the chance to ask him that, but I thought about it there when I saw that acidosis. Just to reiterate that there are so few things that cause your bicarb to be one. Totally. It's, you know, severe, severe sepsis, toxic alcohol, toxic alcohol, toxic alcohol, metformin, and nothing else. Do you ever see a diabetic ketoacidosis with a bicarb of one? I've maybe seen the worst one. It was a bicarb of six, usually 10 to 15. Not common. But very rare. And the differential has got to be toxic alcohol multiple times, severe sepsis, and metformin-induced metabolic acidosis. Wow, that is (laughs) such a golden pearl. Love it. Yeah. Metabolic acidosis with a bicarb of one has a actually a pretty small differential. So that's great. All right. Next clue to toxic alcohol ingestion in the labs. So, you know, I think that the patient that you sort of, that we talked about, we'd hope to have ordered 
a serum osmolality on and a serum ethanol on. Um, if I get a serum osmolality that's maybe 480 milliosmoles, a normal serum osmolality is about 300, okay? And if you get a serum osmolality that's significantly elevated than 300, we'll talk about the osmolar gap in a minute or two, then that might be something I'd think about as and well. And their, their ethanol is zero. Exactly. So you've got this unexplained huge osmolar gap or or elevated serum osmolality on measurement. You've got to think, well, what causes an increased serum osmolality? And it's always alcohols. Is it a toxic alcohol? Well, if there's no other alcohol on board, it's got to be a toxic alcohol. If you've got the really high serum osmolality, zero ethanol, and a metabolic acidosis, I would almost say like, boom, you may have your diagnosis, but we won't go there just yet. But the truth is that there's a bunch of other clues in the lab work, but they're a bit less specific. With ethylene glycol, you may get a renal failure. Like we've talked about, that oxalic acid will complex with calcium and will deposit in the renal tubules. The formic acid, metabolite of methanol, can lead to an increased lactate concentration as well. This is different from maybe all of the systemic hypoperfusion that would come from the metabolic acidosis that the patient's presenting with. Okay, so that's an interesting nuance, is, uh, and that can make it confusing, is that you can actually get a high lactate, which might mislead you into thinking that your acidosis is just from some other cause of high lactate. Totally, Anton. Toxic alcohols, I swear, they're really, really confusing. Because what can happen is a really severe toxic alcohol patient is going to be really acidotic. Okay, And that acidosis in and of itself makes somebody really sick. You're going to hypoperfuse. Maybe it's going to disrupt the how, how well your heart is beating. So you can be hypoperfused and get a lactate elevation as well. And you've got this metabolic acidosis. And then on top of it, I've just said that we know that the metabolite of methanol, formic acid, can lead to an elevated lactate in and of itself. Not like a lactate of eight or anything, but it has been shown to be increased lately. The other really interesting thing is that glycolic acid is measured falsely by most of our lactate assays. And so if you have metabolized your ethylene glycol as far down as glycolic acid, then you will get a falsely elevated lactate level. Wow. So in both the toxic alcohols, methanol and ethylene glycol, you can get an elevated lactate. In the case of methanol, it's because of the formic acid. And in ethylene glycol, it's actually a false elevation. Right. Because of the glycolic acid. Okay. Okay. Bottom line is you can get an elevated lactate from both these toxic alcohols. So you can expect that. So those are some great clues. Uh, I love the triad of the acidosis, high osmolality, and low ethanol level. That pretty much will clinch your diagnosis. And in addition, that great pearl of the really low bicarb, like a bicarb of one, uh, there aren't too many things that can cause that. So, so that should really get your radar up for a toxic alcohol ingestion. And then the not-so-specific lab derangements, like an elevated creatinine, a low calcium, and an elevated lactate. So those are some of the clues. Let's go back to the case now, see what this patient has, and then talk uh, maybe a little bit more specifically on how to interpret the osmolar gap, which can be a bit confusing. So 
Based on the initial routine blood work that was drawn at triage for this patient, you notice a whopping anion gap of 27, a moderately elevated creatinine uh, in Canadian units, 240 millimoles per liter. You send off uh, VBG, osmolality, lactate, serum ketones, ASA, methanol and ethylene glycol levels, urine for calcium oxalate crystals, and you're thinking about your goldmark mnemonic for anion gap metabolic acidosis. Uh, the VBG comes back showing a pH of 7.1. The osmolality is a touch high with a gap of 12, which is a bit over the cutoff of 10, but not so impressive. Your serum ketones, also a touch high. And same with the lactate. The lactate's elevated at three. So now you've got a drinker with a big anion gap, a moderately elevated creatinine, a mildly high osmolar gap, ketones, and lactate. The methanol and ethylene glycol levels aren't back yet. And now your patient's GCS is seven. All right, so let's talk more specifically about osmolar gaps because this often leads to some confusion. First, Dr. Thompson, what is an osmolar gap? Then we'll get on to exactly how we calculate it and what some of the limitations of it are. So the osmolar gap is defined as the difference between the measured serum osmolality at room temperature and the guesstimated serum osmolality based on the osmotically active particles in the bloodstream. And those we assume are accounted for by sodium and other negatively charged anions. So we double the sodium by sodium, by your urea, and by your glucose, as well as any alcohols that might be in the system. So the calculation is usually twice the sodium, plus the BUN, plus the glucose, plus the alcohol concentration with the correction factor as being the calculated serum osmolality. And from that, you take, you take your measured serum osmolality, you calculate the the calculated serum osmolality, and the difference between the two accounts for your osmolar gap. So that's a bit about what the osmolar gap is and how we calculate it. And most of us will have heard that you can have an increased osmolar gap, uh, both with methanol and ethylene glycol toxicity. So Dr. Austin, can you just explain to our listeners how you interpret the osmolar gap for toxic alcohols? Because it's actually not that simple and what the limitations of the osmolar gap are. Yeah, for sure, Anton. So in the setting of a toxic alcohol exposure, we have to go back in simple terms to thinking about that metabolic pathway that we talked about. Because what we've got is we've got our parent compounds, so methanol and ethylene glycol, and then those, like we talked about, get metabolized to these toxic acid metabolites. And the key part to know is that the parent compounds, the methanol and the ethylene glycol, are going to give you a really big osmolar gap. But as they metabolize over time to their toxic acid metabolites, those toxic metabolites are not osmotically active. So in a toxic alcohol exposure, initially, if a patient takes a huge suicide attempt of some type of, let's say, antifreeze, They've got a ton of methanol in their system, and their osmolar gap is going to be really, really high, maybe 
80 milliosmoles per liter. Over time, however, that methanol is going to get metabolized to formic acid. So let's say that patient actually doesn't come in for over a day. When they come in, their osmolar gap could be nothing. It could almost be normal because they will have metabolized all of their methanol or a significant chunk of their methanol, at least, to formic acid. And now they're starting to get exposed to that toxic metabolite. So what do you do? The utility of the osmolar gap is in if you have a big osmolar gap, it can be useful. It can be a clue with a big osmolar gap. And when I say big, I'm actually talking about numbers far over 10, even though we know that 10 is the cutoff. And we'll talk about why that is in a minute. If you've got a big osmolar gap, let's say 50 or 80, that can be really helpful because that can tell you you've got a chunk of an osmotically active compound there that isn't ethanol because you've accounted for it and it could be toxic. So that would be somebody that you might want to intervene on by, for example, treating them with some of the stuff we'll talk about later. If you've got a much lower osmolar gap, however, so let's say you get an osmolar gap of nine. It's really tricky to know if that patient is completely safe from toxic alcohol exposure. One, because we know that the normal range of a osmolar gap can actually start in the negative numbers. And two, because you have to keep in mind that that could mean that they've already metabolized all of their parent compound to the toxic metabolite. All right. So in this patient, their osmolar gap isn't that impressive. It's only 12, um, while their anion gap is very high. Yeah, so. Yeah, so that that would mean that they've had some time um, for that osmolar gap to decrease while the anion gap has increased. To visualize this, I like to think uh, very Canadian-like with two hockey sticks crossed. <laughs> like when I was a kid and played hockey. You yeah, had, that's a good way You know, to you had the it. team yeah. pictures with the two hockey sticks crossed in the front. Right, seen so, those. <laughs> yeah, that as the anion gap increases, the osmolar gap decreases. Exactly. And your patient could be anywhere on that. And if you're lucky enough, you have the time of ingestion, uh, but often we don't have that that time of ingestion. And so it can be very tricky. I think the other thing that I didn't spell out possibly as clearly is that one of the, one of the biggest limitations with the osmolar gap is that the data is sort of based on studies of of populations, but we don't know where your specific patient, what their normal osmolar gap would be. So a normal so the the sort of reported range of a normal osmolar gap it changes no matter what reference you look at, I find. But I've seen from minus 2 to 10, positive 10. I've seen from minus 14 to positive 10. So the point is it can span almost up to 25 or 24 num like uh, data points, right? And you don't really know if where you come in, if, if I'm normally sitting at minus 2 and then I come in with an osmolar gap of 8, well, that could still potentially be a toxic exposure, but we don't know what I'm normally at. And that cutoff of an osmolar gap of 10 isn't going to flag it. It gets tricky though, because is it going to pick up a bunch of stuff that it isn't? So I think, Emily, what you're saying is that if you have a really high osmolar gap, that's helpful. If you have a really low osmolar gap, that's helpful as well. If it's minus 10, there is no 
um, parent toxic alcohol still there. It's possible that their anion gap was because of a toxic alcohol that's now been completely metabolized. Um, But it's not particularly helpful if you've got an osmolar gap that's in the in-between range because a normal osmolar gap for an individual can range from minus 14 to plus 10, and we don't know where our patient was at the beginning. The big issue with it, Anton, the big issue with the osmolar gap is that a low osmolar gap does not rule out a toxic alcohol exposure. Great. So the pitfall would be to assume that there's no toxic alcohol on board if the osmolar gap is normal. The last thing I wanted to talk about with uh, the lab test results is the infamous urinary calcium oxalate crystals in ethylene glycol poisoning. Dr. Thompson, could you just tell us how reliable is this finding? Is it worth sending off? What uh, do we need to know about the urine calcium oxalate crystals? Well, I think it's a, you know, a curiosity. So if I get a urine sample and I can see crystals envelope-shaped crystals under a microscope that, you know, I am thrilled that this is consistent with an ethylene glycol potential um, exposure, but it's not a very helpful test. 50% of normal people, 50% of children will have calcium oxalate crystals in their urine because of dietary um, sources of um, calcium oxalate. And 50% of patients who have had an ethylene glycol exposure, even if it's been metabolized to calcium oxalate, will not get the crystals in their urine. So it's uh, falsely positive 50% of the time, and it's falsely negative 50% of the time. A curiosity if you find it. Right. Okay. So it's one of those things that we all read in the textbooks, but practically speaking, isn't very useful. The other thing that you see in textbooks is the fluorescein and, you know, putting your urine sample under a woods lamp so that you can see the fluorescence of the urine if it was an ethylene glycol exposure. So fluorescein is added to radiate or antifreeze by the manufacturers to help the automobile mechanic. So if you put your car up on stilts and you shine a woods lamp under the, under the car, you can see where the uh, radiator is leaking because you can pick up the fluorescence with your woods lamp if you're an automobile mechanic. If you then drink that ethylene glycol that has fluorescein added to it, maybe your urine will will fluoresce if you get ethylene, if you get the fluorescein goes down into the urine. But the majority of these manufacturers of radiator antifreeze do not add the fluorescein. It's for the benefit of the auto mechanic. It is not the benefit for the benefit of the physician trying to make the diagnosis. The other thing that I've read in textbooks are the bilateral basal ganglia bleeds that you might see in a methanol toxicity. Let's talk about the usefulness of that finding. Dr. Austin? So Anton, the bilateral basal ganglia necrosis or even potential hemorrhage is not specific for a methanol toxicity. There's other presentations that it's been associated with. One of the classic ones is carbon monoxide, but there is other causes of it as well. So it's not specific for methanol toxicity. Another important point is that if you have this 
I mean, it, it seems very reasonable to me that in a patient who's slightly altered, you would consider getting a CT head. And if you have this finding on a CT head and it is in the context of a severe metabolic anti-gap acidosis, you might consider at that point, if you haven't already, methanol toxicity, but you're late in the game. It's too late, she's gone. It's too late, my baby's gone. Just some quick announcements before we get onto the management of toxic alcohols. North York General's 31st Annual Emergency Medicine Update, that's EMU Conference, in Toronto at the end of April is going to be yet another mind-expanding experience with tons of practical, hands-on workshops like POCUS and airway workshops and some of North America's best EM speakers, Matu, Himmel, Weingart, Hicks, Gray, the list goes on and on. I'll be doing a live podcast with Weingart on airway pitfalls, so I hope to see you there. And if you're interested in starting your own podcast or you want to sharpen your already amazing podcast skills, I'll be running Podcast Camp, a two-day intensive hands-on course with only 20 tickets available. Go to podcastcamp.org for more details. Now back to toxic alcohols. All right. So we've talked plenty about the recognition of toxic alcohol ingestion, and that's really the key part uh, because we all know that once you've recognized this, the first thing you're going to do is call the poison control center and they can help you with the management. But let's talk about some of the key actions that you need to take in terms of management of these patients. Dr. Austin, can you first explain to our listeners kind of what the goals of treatment are in general in these toxic alcohol ingestion patients? Sure, Anton. So I think that the Oh, like if, if we're to say what's the number one big goal in the management of a toxic alcohol patient is if you've got the presence of the parent compound, i.e. methanol or ethylene glycol, it's going to be to block that metabolism to the toxic metabolite. So that would be to block your alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme using either ethanol or femepazole. There's a few other goal treatment goals that are important too. If you have a, a, a bad acidosis, you should probably be giving some bicarb to correct that a little bit because we know that the toxicity is going to be worse and the outcomes can be worse in these patients if they're really acidotic. So restore, restoration of a sort of more normal pH is important too. And I think that the final sort of overarching goal is that you want to help these patients be able to excrete the toxic metabolites that they have. And so that sort of brings up the question of, do you need to consider dialysis for this patient? So the three big goals there are to block the formation of the toxic metabolites, either with femepazole or ethanol. Second is to try and correct the pH with bicarb. And third is to consider dialysis. All right. So those are the big ones. Let's step back and talk about kind of all the steps of management. So first, Dr. Thompson, is there any role for GI decontamination in these toxic alcohol patients? It depends on the timing of the presentation to the emergency department. So if it's an inadvertent, you know, gulped a whole bunch of the windshield antifreeze because it was in the wrong container and then you realize that you've had 
um, a toxic alcohol exposure. You come to the emergency department. You're there within an hour. You've got a whole bunch of the toxic alcohol still in your GI tract. Sure, aspiration of that toxic alcohol out of the stomach might decrease the morbidity associated with that particular exposure. For the most part, these patients come in as an enigma, and it's a couple of hours before we are sure that this was a toxic alcohol exposure. The toxic alcohol has all been absorbed. It's in the circulation. It's going on to be metabolized. Um, gastric emptying at that point is of no benefit at all because the toxin is in the circulation. All right. So bottom line there is that there's very little, if any, role for GID contamination in these patients because pretty much all the time you're going to be too late. Right. Now, let's say you deem this patient who has a GCS of seven now an aspiration risk, which you probably will, and you want to secure the airway. How would you modify your usual RSI for this patient who has, hint, a serious metabolic acidosis? Well, these are tricky airways to manage. And they're tricky airways to manage because my biggest worry is that the moment I try to secure the airway, I'm going to remove this patient's respiratory drive and drive that acidosis up more because I've increased their PCO2, and then they're going to arrest. And I think that most of us are aware that the risk of a peri-intubation arrest would be quite high in a patient with a severe metabolic acidosis. So Anton, you know, if I'm seeing this patient GCS is 7, let's say the pH is like 7 and our bicarb's like 2 or 3, I think that what I would do is I would prepare my airway equipment. I'd have the most experienced operator in the room attempt the airway because I want to get this tube on the first try. I would not paralyze the patient. I would plan to, to just use ketamine so that the patient can maintain their respirate the entire time that they're going. And I'll tell you, the other step I take, which is something that I don't normally do, is I would stand at the foot of the bed and calculate the patient's respirate myself so that I know what I want to set my ventilations to, or I know what I want to be bagging the patient at in my mind as the MRP for this patient as soon as that tube is in place. There's that one other thing is I would consider giving a couple boluses of bicarb. Just going to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd consider giving a couple boluses of bicarb just as I'm getting ready to intubate as well. So just to summarize, most experienced operator, because I want this tube on the first attempt, I have got to know my respirate before we attempt anything. I'm going to do my best to avoid paralysis, and I'd use an agent like ketamine where the patient's going to be able to maintain their respiration, their own respirate. I'm going to give some bolus amps of bicarb. And finally, I think it's really just good practice. You're going to communicate your plan to your RT and your team that after we want to really maintain this patient's respirate at a high rate so that they're not going to build up their PCO2 and arrest. Amazing. I would love to see you in action doing all of that. That's, that was incredibly well explained. We had mentioned the three big goals. The first one is to block the toxic metabolite formation, and that you can do with fomepazole or with ethanol. So Dr. Thompson, how do you decide when to administer fomepazole or ethanol to your patient um, who you suspect has uh, toxic alcohol ingestion, knowing that fomepazole is quite expensive and that we're not going to be throwing it at every patient who's inebriated with an anion gap metabolic acidosis? So, Anton, let me just start by saying the preferred agent is fomepazole. 
if you don't have femeprazole available to you in a timely fashion, like within the half hour, then you would consider ethanol for the same indications. If you have a patient who has a very good history or a clear history of an ingestion of a toxic alcohol, even without getting your labs, especially in resource-poor places where you can't get a serum osmolality. If you have the advantage of being able to get a serum osmolality and you can get it within an hour, then I would wait to give the blocker until I got an elevated serum osmolality back. If you have an increased osmolar gap with an increased anion gap, as being another indication, if you have a history or a suspicion of a toxic alcohol ingestion and evidence of end organ toxicity so that you have visual complaints and or you have um, renal insufficiency in your patient, then I would give a blocker in those circumstances as well. And there's standard textbook levels. If you're able to get a methanol, a serum methanol level and it's greater than 8, or you're able to get a serum ethylene glycol level and it's greater than about 3.2, those would be millimoles per liter, let me say. Those would be other indications to give a blocker. Femepazole first if it's available, alcohol if it is not. All right. And we'll have all the dosing of femepazole uh, on the show notes and the EM Cases app. So let's say you're in a resource poor center where you can't get your hands on femepazole within an hour um, and you need to give ethanol. How do you give it? It's like, do you just go down the street and say, hey, go get a bottle of vodka from the store there and start drinking? That Uh, has happened before. Do you give it IV? And if you do give it IV, how do you give it? Uh, How do you monitor the patient? I mean, they're going to be pretty wasted, I imagine, if they're already you know, maybe inebriated and then you're giving them the, the ethanol. What are the practicalities of giving the ethanol? There have been pharmaceutical grade ethanol products um, marketed in the past. But because ethanol has never been an approved treatment for toxic alcohol ingestions, and now we have an approved treatment, pharmaceutical companies are not making that product anymore. So practicalities are that you have to go down to the the grocery store, the LCBO, um, get the RCMP to release, you know, a stock that they might have in a a nursing station, for example. And we would recommend giving oral alcohol. You have to give these patients something. And again, we've got a rate of how much oral alcohol you would have to put down an NG tube or give the patient to drink as a bolus and then give them a drink every hour to keep their blood ethanol level high enough to block the metabolism of the toxic alcohol. Anton, the only other thing that I think is important to touch base on is let's imagine this patient who comes in and they were drinking alcohol, they became suicidal, and they ingested a bunch of antifreeze in a suicide attempt. So they now have both ethanol and methanol on board. The other useful thing just to note there is that you're worried for sure about this toxic alcohol getting metabolized, like we've talked about, and getting them sick. The only thing is that if they've got ethanol on board, you can actually take a deep breath because you've got a bit of time. And if their ethanol level is over that sort of target that is at least an ethanol level of 22 to 23, a serum ethanol level, 22 to 23 millimoles per liter in Canadian units or SI units, sorry. If that serum ethanol level is above that, then that patient's alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme is blocked. So they're not at risk for metabolizing that methanol that they've also just drank to the toxic alcohol level for a little bit. Now, 
The truth is they're going to metabolize down their ethanol. So if their ethanol level drops below that level of 22, 23, then they're going to start metabolizing methanol. So you haven't totally rid yourself of the problem, but you can buy yourself a little bit of time. Great pearl. So the second goal that you were talking about was correcting the acidosis. Now, in most conditions that cause a metabolic acidosis uh, with a lowish bicarb, there's really very little role for giving bicarb besides making the numbers look better and maybe making yourself feel a bit better. So I just want to put that out there as a background to our discussion on correcting the metabolic acidosis because for toxic alcohols, you really should be correcting the acidosis and giving bicarb. Uh, So Dr. Thompson, what are the indications for giving bicarb in a patient with a, a toxic alcohol ingestion? As compared to you know, a lot of other conditions that are for metabolic acidosis, there probably is ongoing metabolism to acid when you're treating these toxic alcohol patients. And so because of ongoing acidemia, we do recommend that you correct with bicarb. I would correct until I have a pH of about 7.2. And some of that is actually fluid correction because of the hypoperfusion, et cetera. These patients have been to Kipnik and these patients are probably somewhat dehydrated as well. So you have to bring them back to uvolemia and give them bicarb boluses, maybe a bicarb infusion to help bring their pH back towards 7.2 to decrease the amount of acid formed from the methanol to formic acid Um, that would get into the brain, for example, and cause the injury to the basal ganglia that we were talking about, to be able to make the heart beat better, decrease the hypoperfusion that can occur from the acidosis of the other toxic alcohols as well. All right. And I'm assuming that just like a lot of toxicologic treatments, the evidence for giving bicarb isn't based on huge randomized control trials. Really? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is. But uh, that's, that's sort of the expert consensus opinion. Right. So we've talked about two of the big goals of treatment. We've talked about the fomepazole and ethanol. We've talked about correcting the acidosis. Next is to consider dialysis. Uh, So Dr. Thompson, can you first give us a little bit of the reasoning why dialysis is often necessary in these patients as a life-saving measure? And then we'll get on to which kind of patients we should be dialyzing. So you just explained, Anton, that we are blocking the metabolism of that parent compound, the methanol or the ethylene glycol, to the toxin by blocking alcohol dehydrogenase, but that compound sits there in the circulation and has no other route of being metabolized. So how are we going to get that parent compound out of the circulation would be our indication for using dialysis. The other thing is we can dialyze out the toxin if the parent has already gone to formic acid or has gone to oxalic acid or glycolic acid, we can dialyze out the toxic byproduct as well. Okay. So I suppose that one of the key action items in terms of management of these patients is to get your nephrologist on the phone early um, if you're really suspecting that they have uh, a bad toxic alcohol ingestion. So Dr. Austin, could you just go over for us 
now that we understand why these patients need dialysis, what the sort of specific indications would be? So I'll tell you, Anton, that this list is not agreed upon by every toxicology association or group out there, okay? But in general, the the indications for dialysis in the toxic alcohol poison patient are going to be a metabolic acidosis along with end organ toxicity. And so when we talk about that end organ toxicity, it's going to be that patient who is super hypotensive potentially because of their acidosis or a patient with those visual abnormalities or a patient with renal failure or maybe they seized because of their hypocalcemia because so much oxalic acid was produced. So those are pretty much the most sort of definitive indications for dialysis. The other indication for dialysis is going to be that more of a relative indication is this toxic concentration or the toxic level of your parent compound. So we know that it's going to take a really long time to eliminate methanol from the body because methanol, the parent compound methanol is not eliminated through our kidneys. It's only really eliminated through expiration. So if you have a really significant methanol level, let's say a methanol level of 20, that's going to be hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of a patient who's requiring monitoring, potentially in an ICU, and requiring an expensive antidote of femepazole. If you do dialysis, you're going to increase that elimination time and be able to eliminate the methanol. The specific concentrations that we choose to dialyze are different depending on where you look. I know what ours are at the poison center, which would generally be a methanol concentration of about 15 or an ethylene glycol serum concentration of about 6. In the patient that you can't get a um, toxic alcohol level, there are lots of facilities that would actually dialyze based on a high osmolar gap. If your gap is 90, you know that it's equivalent approximately to a toxic alcohol uh, concentration of 90. And again, like you said, it's going to take so long to eliminate that from the body that it's more cost-effective to actually dialyze those patients. All right. So the, the practical considerations are to speak to your nephrologist early and to speak to your poison control center early uh, so you can make a, a shared decision uh, on whether this patient needs dialysis. You got it. Um, my understanding is that whereas methanol almost always needs dialysis, ethylene glycol, if you've given the femepazole in a timely manner and if you've done all the other things we've talked about, that some of those patients can often get away without requiring dialysis. Is, is that uh, accurate? We are able to eliminate ethylene glycol more effectively through our kidneys. We're not really able to eliminate methanol through our kidneys. So assuming that we haven't knocked out our kidneys from the renal injury from the ethylene glycol poisoning and that our kidneys are still functioning – you will, over time, be able to eliminate the ethylene glycol through the kidneys. It can take a while, though, like five days. There's case reports of people being on femepazole for five days. You can't really eliminate methanol through the kidneys, so it's, it takes Even forever. longer. It takes longer. The half-life's like 50 hours. Those are the three big goals. We've talked about blocking the toxic metabolite with femepazole or ethanol. We've talked about correcting the acidosis, and we've talked about dialysis. The one thing we haven't talked about yet are the cofactors. These are always listed in the textbooks, peroxidine and thiamine and folic acid. Could you just review for us kind of what the key things that we need to know about giving cofactors in these toxic al alcohol patients? For sure. So there's no sort of, as everything in toxicology, there's <laughs> no confirmed randomized studies that these cofactors have really improved human mortality or morbidity. However, 
There are some case reports that maybe suggest that they did work, and we give them. So what the gist is with the cofactors is that in the case of ethylene glycol, the two cofactors we think about are going to be pyridoxine and thiamine. And in the case of methanol, it's going to be either folic acid or leucovorin. And we're giving these cofactors to help the toxic metabolites get metabolized themselves to non-toxic metabolites, basically. So it just helps to drive those pathways down another direction into something that's non-toxic. All right. So up till now, we've been concentrating on the management of the nasty methanol and ethylene glycol. Let's not forget about the less toxic, but also important isopropyl alcohol, because that, I understand, has a much higher incidence in terms of toxic presentations in emergency departments in North America. We see a lot more isopropyl alcohol poisoning than we do methanol and ethylene glycol. So even though it's not quite as toxic, you know, I remember working at St. Mike's way back, uh, and there were a few frequent flyer alcohol misuse patients who would steal the hand sanitizer off the wall in the ED and take off down the street to the park. And then a couple of hours later, they would present back to our triage with isopropyl alcohol intoxication. So that's historical, Anton, because now in our, you know, in our wisdom, we've replaced the isopropyl alcohol with ethanol. So they no longer have isopropyl alcohol intoxication. They're just intoxicated with regular alcohol. All right. (laughs) The hand sanitizers don't contain isopropyl, just ethanol. Okay. (laughs) But, you know, I was working last night, actually, and I saw a case of an isopropyl alcohol poison patient. And this is a patient who came in and he said that he, he, he is a frequent flyer at our hospital. And he said that he had drank rubbing alcohol, which is his drug of choice. And he came in extremely intoxicated, and then over the course of his stay in the emergency department, sobered up. The interesting thing about his presentation is that he was complaining of abdominal pain. And that is something that can be associated with an isopropyl alcohol poisoning. So these patients can get a gastritis. There's been reports of a hemorrhagic gastritis that's quite severe as well in them. Um, It also makes them more likely to get pancreatitis. Yeah. Um, don't ignore those abdo pain sorts of complaints in the chronic alcoholic or in those that have had, you know, an isopropyl alcohol exposure. That's a great pearl. So I like to think of isopropyl alcohol as ethanol, just much worse. So anything you can imagine that happens with a patient with ethanol, gastritis, pancreatitis, massive upper GI bleed with the esophageal varices, inebriation, all that stuff, it can happen with isopropyl alcohol. And often things like hemorrhagic gastritis or pancreatitis can be more severe. So knowing that the presentation and the things to expect from an isopropyl alcohol ingestion are similar to ethanol, but just more severe, how do you manage these patients in the emergency department? So really, Anton, the principle of managing an isopropyl alcohol ingestion is supportive care. They're going to need fluids because of their GI complaints. They're going to need electrolyte measurements because as any other um, chronic abuser of an alcohol, they're probably going to be deficient in a lot of their electrolytes. They may be hypomagnesemic and hypocalcemic. They may need thiamine just as any other chronic alcoholic would be. Don't take their complaints lightly and investigate with an amylase or a lipase or whatever your um, monitoring is for pancreatitis. Watch for GI bleeding. 
I would just say that, and I know we've talked about sort of not over-investigating the in, apparently intoxicated patient, but in a patient who's endorsing an isopropyl alcohol ingestion, I would make sure that I have a VBG and a lactate just so that I could sort of rule out any evidence of a metabolic acidosis. Yeah, because they could also, if if someone is drinking isopropyl alcohol, they are the probably the population that's more likely to go to another alternative toxic alcohol if they can't get their drug of choice. All right. So let's just review the time-dependent actions in toxic alcohol poisoning. And pretty much in this order, of course, you want to start with your ABCs. You need to secure the airway if you think there's an aspiration risk, but be very aware of the acidosis. Think about giving bicarb boluses and match the patient's respiratory rate uh, before you intubate them to after. Consider using ketamine or a DSI. Call your poison control center early. Think about calling your nephrologist early to consider dialysis. Order the ECG in the labs that we've talked about. You need to prevent those toxic metabolites. So consider giving femepazole or ethanol if you don't have access to femepazole quickly. And also don't forget to replenish the cofactors, folic acid for methanol and thiamine and pyridoxine for ethylene glycol. Correct the acidosis with bicarb. And again, consider dialysis, especially in the methanol toxic patients. So next time you're faced with an agitated patient who won't give you a history or an inebriated patient found down, or even a patient who tells you they drank a couple of antifreeze, you'll be able to recognize the key clinical clues of toxic alcohol poisoning, dive into the key time-sensitive actions you need to take, and manage them as well, well, let's say almost as well, as Dr. Thompson and Dr. Austin would. <laughs> so until next time, thank you so much for being back on EM Cases. You guys are just awesome. Thanks so much, Anton. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> 